0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this Twitter Spaces, a Real Vision conversation about India. My name is Ash Bennington, and I'm joined today by Deepak Shanoi of Capital Mind. Deepak, welcome.
1: Ash. great to be here. Um, we'll catch up with you again.
0: It's great to talk to you again as well. I should say, you and I just had a conversation earlier this spring that ran on the Real Vision platform talking about. India, uh, where you, of course, are based. Deepak, for folks who are listening to this conversation, uh, who are interested in India, who are curious about what is happening there, what the world's largest democracy, 1.4 billion people are doing, give us the 50,000 foot overview on your view of what's happening in India right now.
1: You know, just a quick view, I, I, I live in India, so I guess I'll make this, I tend to make assumptions that everybody knows about it, but a quick view, we're about 1.4 billion people. Um, uh, at last count, the class, I remember at least 28 states plus, and uh, we uh, many of our states are probably bigger than uh, many countries uh, in terms of population, uh, some in terms of area as well. Uh, uh, we're like the seventh largest uh, country in terms of size, but uh, uh, India has just one time zone, uh, like China. Uh, uh, but China's much uh, wider. India's uh, relatively more uh, long than wide um, uh, in that way. Uh, economically, of course... Uh, we're, I think, number four or number five right now in the world. We are also, uh, the per capita GDP, though, is uh, much lower. We're about $2,000 uh, per capita income, a little bit less than that because the U.S. dollar versus the rupee has, um, the equation has actually changed in the last few months. So our per capita income might be a little bit lower than $2,000. Um, uh, it's moved up quite a bit, but, Uh, A few other things from an economic perspective, we have very vibrant uh, stock markets. Uh, So, one of the largest participations as well, retail typically ends up being 33% of trading volume of a day versus uh, relatively relative to institutional volume we are also one of the largest uh, single stock futures markets in the world i think the largest single stock futures markets in the world and one of the largest options markets in the world as well in terms of number of contracts traded um uh, the market structures a little different so our volumes on the on the actual stock markets are relatively low. It's probably as much as the whole Indian market trades about uh, 8 or $9 billion a day, which is not very huge uh, from an equity market perspective. The derivatives markets are multiple, many multiples of those, but 8 to $9 billion is roughly what one large stock in the US would trade on a daily basis and sometimes on an hourly basis. So it's not a very... Um, uh, very heavily traded market so volumes are a concern but uh, uh overall um i think we've got uh, we have about five to seven thousand companies a very vibrant you, you know uh, uh mutual fund market as well but typically the largest volume happens to be in just the top 100 stocks, um or maybe the top 250 stocks uh at most we have um, uh, a lot of uh, foreign owned companies also that have indian arms that are listed including unilever which is hindustan unilever uh, uh suzuki's indian arm which is maruti suzuki uh, of joint venture with the government at that point there was there is uh, nestle india which is listed uh, and so on there's a lot of companies we call them mnc's multinational corporations there are also indian corporations that have become uh, multinationals, like you might have heard of the Tata Group, uh, Infosys, TCS, companies like this, which provide services uh, uh, and some, in some cases, products worldwide as well. And, uh, um, you know, we're probably just getting started with a developing economy, a lot of the infrastructure that uh, one might take for granted in the West, including, um, say, metro connectivity in cities or Great roads or or stuff like that is in the developing part of the ecosystem. But some parts of it are probably more advanced than most other countries, including our payments ecosystem where we have instant payments for free available across India, across all banks, uh, with an infrastructure created by the central government. We have one of the best telecom and lowest cost telecom networks in the world uh, where I think the average... Revenue per unit is less than $3 a month. Uh, And yet we're able to do this for, I think, about 800 to 900 million uh, people uh, that are connected uh, at any point. So um, more than that, of course, there is also uh, new infrastructure that's developing from the rail networks to uh, road networks to uh, newer age telecom and e-commerce infrastructure uh, here as well. So I'm sorry, this is just a 50,000 feet view, but, you know, uh, so this,
0: is, <laughs> going on. This, this is fantastic, Deepak, I think, for people who are just trying to get their head around understanding what's happening in India. You mentioned, of course, relatively modest per capita GDP, I believe IMF classifies India as a lower middle income country, but also Mm. a country that's rapidly growing, rapidly developing, rapidly industrializing. Tell us that story. And it's been a, you know, a 30 year story. Tell us a little bit about that broader context for people who are trying to understand uh, the opportunities in India in terms of its growth.
1: Yes, I think, uh, you know, India is, there's a lot of little India's, um, each of them probably the size of large economies in uh, in terms of our per capita income although it may be $2000 uh, per month there is a significant population uh, i mean uh, i'm talking of maybe uh, maybe a 50 to 100 million population that is actually the english speaking twitter following uh, relatively higher earning population this is less than 10% of the Uh, total population in India and that is pretty much the target market for most people who are uh, developing uh, products globally or otherwise Uh, What's
0: fascinating about it Deepak is that 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 group alone you say only 10% of the population uh, but with a population of 1.4 billion that's a considerable number of people you're talking about 100 million people uh, in in middle income status I mean that's a pretty extraordinary story
1: Yeah, it's actually developed over years, because uh, for a long time, India was a controlled uh, economy, a lot more socialist than it was capitalist. So a lot of the things were just run by the government, people did not have uh, incomes of any sort, most of industry was also owned or developed by the government. So um, Private enterprise was not uh, considered a great thing. At one point, we had 94, 98% taxes as well. So it was a little extreme. But um, uh, well, come well, 90... New York
0: City, so I know what that's like.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, uh, we are we trying to go back there, but we're not as bad. We just were 42% at the highest rate right now. but uh, right. But still, you know, I don't know how much New York is. I hope it isn't more than that.
0: Well, for high, you know, for high income earners, actually, in New York City, the highest tax rate when you aggregate federal, state, and local, I believe, uh, in New York City now is over 50%. So interestingly, lower in India than in New York City, uh, and, and I believe in the state of California as well.
1: Wow. So six months a year you work for the government? I That sounds amazing.
0: Well, Deepak, but... I don't make enough to be in that tax bracket, but if I were making $100 million a year, uh, that would be the case.
1: Well, okay, I guess at that level it shouldn't make so much of a difference, but I mean, uh, anyways, India was always like that in the sense um, uh, to a certain extent there was a feeling that private inequity of income in a way was not a great thing, and uh, it's only in 1992 when you know India's literally had its back I mean it had its back to the wall at that time because we couldn't pay back our debt we had to take a a loan from the IMF and pledge our gold and in Indian custom it's like if you have to pledge your gold it's like the worst thing ever so um, India kind of reformed. So post-1992, private enterprise, there was licensing of all sorts. So for instance, if you had to produce 100 vehicles, you had to get a license from the government that allowed you to produce 100. You couldn't produce 101. So uh, even if there was demand, you had to go back and get a license or increase your license capacity. And only then would you uh, be allowed to do more. All this licensing was removed in 1992. And that's when things started to change. Uh, foreign investments in indian companies was uh, highly regulated in the past in fact uh, coca cola withdrew from the from india in 1970 sometime because they said well you have to list any indian company uh, a, a, you know if you want to be in india you have to list your uh, your your indian arms which is how nestle india and hindustan Unilever india got listed but uh, um, uh in 1992 all these rules were removed and that's been 30 years since and you know things have kind of uh, improved so india became a fairly large player in the international you know technology or information technology services landscape infosys and tcs cognizant which is listed in the us uh, infosys and adr in the us these are all large companies uh, 100 200 300000 employees that uh uh, serve world markets uh, primarily in, in the services area they have some products as well they've uh, been a fairly large source of uh, foreign exchange earning for india so indian exp- india largely imports goods but exports services so we uh, i think about there's a uh, trade deficit so we we import more than we export in terms of goods about 20 billion dollars a month um uh, and uh out of that, about 6 to $7 billion a month comes in uh, from our exports of services like uh, technology services and so on. Another 6 to $7 billion. India is the largest receiver of remittances in the world. So a lot of workers that go abroad send money back to their families. In those remittances, India is the largest receiver of remittances in the world. So that accounts mm-hmm. another $6 billion a quarter. So $6 billion a month. So... Um, this is pretty much, you know, so the exchange rate uh, tends to largely um, because we are a net importer. We're one of the largest net importers uh, in terms of world countries uh, comparatively. So because most of the large world economies tend to be net exporters. So whether it's Germany or Japan or uh, 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 even in the developed markets the or uh, developing markets, the Korea and Singapore and so on, I think there's more... Um, uh, uh, of the export-oriented, uh, the more export-oriented countries. India is a net importer uh, for the most part. So we one of the largest single net importing blocks. And uh, uh, therefore, our manufacturing setup, have, it's really not been a great manufacturing economy. It's largely been a service-led economy right from the beginning. China and uh, Taiwan and all that have kind of taken the lead on uh, manufacturing. We're just starting to catch up. And uh, in order to promote manufacturing, the government has recently started a few things and eased up a lot of labor laws in order for uh, manufacturing to actually, you know, be competitive worldwide. Uh, we've also started a new, uh, there's a uh, this, uh, GST, a single goods and services tax. Earlier, there were a bunch of taxes that applied to all sorts of units that made it very uh, uh, very difficult for manufacturing units to be able to be competitive because you couldn't offset one tax against another so a gs single gst just allows you to do that more meaningfully it's the early days of uh, all of this and we have started to uh, become serious players in the chemical uh, export space, so intermediates, APIs, and so on. Uh, but again, we are such a small fraction of the world economy that if you said, well, 98% is China, let's move 1% to India, that would actually double or triple whatever India is exporting. So we're really small in the manufacturing space that way. Uh, things are moving. Uh, where Our payments ecosystem has actually made uh, uh, transactional economies much uh, more easy in India. So a uh, lot of local, um, both startups and established companies are benefiting from almost instant payments uh, 24 hours a day for free, seven days a week. So you could go to any shop and you don't need cash anymore in most places. You just have to use your phone and make a payment. Um, and it's for both parties. You
0: know, talking of of phones, and it's obviously interesting because we're we're, we're having this conversation right now uh, on Twitter Spaces. I was just looking up the statistics here. Uh, total population of India, twenty twenty one, approximately one point four billion. Total smartphone users, approximately half a billion. Uh, that's a nearly that's over, I should say, two thirds smartphone penetration. Pretty extraordinary figure. I'm curious, how is that? Uh, helping to assist the development process you know you mentioned the 10 percent middle income individuals in india what about the other 90 percent what strides are being made uh, to help with that development effort
1: yeah so i think india is actually the problem has been india doesn't have so many urban centers so very few large cities uh in comparison with the u.s or even you know uh germany in terms of just relative population density. So what happens is a large large part of this 90% tends to be in agriculture or in the rural areas. Uh, more than 50% of India is employed or re- indirectly employed in agriculture. So uh, to urbanize more, the government's actually setting up a lot more infrastructure from roads to ports to uh, more airports and trying to uh, increase the... Uh, uh, attractiveness of more cities. So that's one part. The telecom part is an interesting piece because what happened was the cost of a smartphone. Uh, in the US, I think you largely pay a package fee. Um, so your phone kind of comes in in, uh, in in a package. So if you just sign up for it, it comes in. in India, people pay for their phone separately. And India is a 90 plus percent prepaid economy. So when you buy a phone, you actually buy currency to use it. So, um, uh, and because prepaid rates were actually, there was a big competition, a new player uh, joined in in 2014 and then slashed rates to such levels that people could get high-speed internet on their phones and at the same time pay very little out of the order of one and a half to $2 a month at the time. Um, uh, So that kind of gave this a lot of, uh, you know, the scale started over there. Then UPI, which started, which started uh, helping people that used smartphones, they could use it much better. They could just scan with a camera and pay and and so on. This uh, kind of also started to change the game after 2016 and 2017. So that part I think is where, you know, we're getting the rest of the people back on track, but it's still early days. They're not earning enough incomes yet to make a difference.
0: Well, it's so interesting. One of the things that is, is a, a theme that we've been reading about in the U.S. is this idea that, you know, that developing nations now have the ability to sort of leapfrog, as I think the term that's being used, some of the existing uh, legacy infrastructure that the United States has, for example, or other developed countries in Western Europe, uh, and can immediately go to this, uh, you know, this ecosystem where everything is tied in with mobile phones. You don't have the Legacy payment architecture, for example, uh, to have to compete with, things can be done uh, in a way that's kind of fresh. It's a blank it's a blank sheet of paper. And it sounds like when we talk about the the vibrancy of India, the vibrancy of the Indian people, the vibrancy of the Indian economy, that there's a great deal of promise. For with, particularly with cell phones, we see that penetration rate over 35%. I was just reading projections that within the next several years, uh, 1 billion active cell phone users in India, the capacity to really begin to develop the economy in new ways through new technology.
1: I mean, I think uh, the idea of leapfrog. for instance, America had CDMA. They were huge investments in CDMA. So you didn't have mobile phones with, uh, with uh, the newer technology, which was kind of taking over the rest of the world. And India kind of uh, leapfrogged out of CDMA and uh, went straight to GSM, where you had SIM, SIM cards. And then it kind of... Uh... So, uh, uh, of course, you know, the world caught up at some point and we were actually going behind. And then when uh, reliance which is one of our largest telecom networks they invested they invested in brand new infrastructure that had voLTE right from the beginning so uh, um, you know you could have much lower bandwidth for phone calls you could have internet running at the same time and you know it was it was just that we didn't we probably didn't have those legacy investments that uh, um, uh, allowed this to you know hold us down but it was also a bit of the american culture also coming in here which is we allowed our companies to fail earlier because companies were owned by the government they weren't allowed to fail so you created bad rules just to keep the bloated government companies alive and now i don't when private enterprises come in there's no fear that companies will fail lesser fear and over time that has That is what has brought in new uh, technology. So, for instance, Amazon is one, still one of the largest retailers in India, but they have competition uh, in many ways from both local players, there's local shipping and delivery and logistics companies. Uh, there is a new platform that's coming in called ONDC that's been pioneered by the government, and it will be in action soon. This allows local hubs which can be... Uh, Copies of Amazon and uh, uh, which can you know source and deliver goods locally without uh, with with public infrastructure similar to how the public infrastructure fueled payments. So uh, you know, imagine uh, disin- disintermediated e-commerce and uh, logistics all at one place with a. Um, uh, a public digital goods infrastructure that allows you to access all of this using APIs. Uh, it will be revolutionary, but I think it's still about three four years away. Uh, that's what's kind of changing this. I think if in if in another country you try to bring this up, it would always be this. Listen, you can't do this. It will harm all the people who invested in this platform so far. In India, it's like you don't have to have that because almost nobody has invested yet.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really intriguing. You talk about this, and just I, I know for some folks who, who are not necessarily in the tech space, you're talking about APIs. These are application programming interfaces. The ability essentially to have uh, digital e-commerce platforms plug into each other uh, and therefore to kind of synergize the existing structure. It's really an interesting one, getting back to this, this sort of concept of leapfrogging, the ability to look at things with a fresh eye from a digital perspective and have true digital native solutions to develop infrastructure in new ways. It's really a fascinating topic.
1: Ash, there's another interesting thing that's just happened, something called the account aggregator ecosystem. So All banks and all uh, uh, stock brokers and all of them are on this platform. The idea is... That if you, um, if I were to ask you, listen, I want to, I want if you want a loan, I just need to know um, what kind of transactions you've had on your bank accounts, and I need to monitor them on a regular basis, uh, and then I'll give you this loan. Uh, currently, the process involves you taking printouts and maybe uploading them or sending them in physical form, and somebody actually going through these things. You can do this electronically using a cons- uh, consent management framework so you could actually say listen uh give Deepak the access to my account uh once so that he can see all the transactions so that he can give me a loan and then don't allow him to see it again so it's a one-time consent uh that allows me to do this I can also say listen give him consent I'll allow him to do to see anything he wants in my bank accounts uh for the next one year because that's the period of the loan that I've I've taken so this allows uh, me as a lender to monitor a person's financial behavior, uh, if it may. I know it's a little; it sounds a little overboard in terms of privacy. But the consent framework is that the borrower can withdraw consent at any time. The person giving the consent can uh, withdraw the consent at any time, and it's a it's public infrastructure. It's been created in a in a format that allows uh, every single participant to provide their information and also receive information. From a centralized, uh, you know, it's it's a federated kind of uh, model, but the idea is it's entirely electronic. So this will facilitate uh, credit because otherwise, getting creditworthiness uh, uh, of people is a lot more difficult in a country which. You know, has such a disparate number of people, disparate number of industries, languages. We have twenty plus official languages, so it's it's much more difficult to do this. But if you had it electronically, things would be much easier. In in America, I think many of these are private companies, so we don't. So you uh, uh, you can't get everybody to participate. They all have to. They don't necessarily right. have to link because it's a private player. Here it's. Uh, the, the regulators setting this up and once they mandate that everybody has to integrate they have to so it's like you can get all of it in one place
0: yeah, it really is fascinating. And, you know, it's it's so important to bring in that cultural context. You mentioned over 120 languages in India, just so people understand that the difference in context, culturally, sociologically, just it's so important to understand that when you talk about these novel technology platforms that do things like have this federated model, I, by the way, something that doesn't exist in the United States, although there are some folks who are talking about building similar things uh, on crypto rails, the ability to for example, monitor for a specific period of time, and then to have the the borrower, whoever is granting access to withdraw their own permissions for that and to be in control of their financial destiny. Really interesting stuff.
1: Very true. In fact, uh, I mean, I, the models uh, just, uh, it, the thing is that there isn't an easy way to do it right now. And, uh, you know, somebody thought about this and said, well, we need a We need an aggregation ecosystem. And like this, there are about maybe 10 or 15 such digital infrastructure projects that are coming in. So if you think of roads as infrastructure in the physical world, or ports or airports, you need uh, certain things to be infrastructure in the digital world. And perhaps we learn a lot more from the crypto space on what they've done. They've done 24-hour markets. They have done instant collateralization uh, for credit and decollateralization as well. They've done... uh, You know, automated market making. There's a lot of things that I think we can learn from it. And perhaps India will be one of the few markets where some of this will be implemented faster in the financial world uh, compared to other countries.
0: Right. You know, it's interesting, Deepak, we've talked about the, the technology, we've talked about the culture, we've talked about the demography, we've talked about the macroeconomic picture. Let's change gears here a little bit and talk about the financial infrastructure of India, how these assets are investable, how that's different. It's really interesting because, you know, as you sort of compare and contrast the way the United States uh, capital markets were compared to the Indian capital markets, give us the 50,000 foot overview of how capital markets function in India, what their scope is and how they are currently used.
1: Okay, I think from a, for, uh, you know, from, a, from a perspective of a person abroad who's investing in India, it's a little complicated because as an individual abroad, you can't invest in India directly. You'll have to use an ETF listed in your market. Like uh, in the US, there are uh, ETFs that exclusively invest in India. Some ex- in, in invest in emerging markets, which include India and so on. So they are institutional players. And India allows institutions to come in through something called a foreign portfolio investor um, uh, mechanism but individuals currently can't come in so that's a little bit of a, a bummer for, um, for people who think that this is a good opportunity and they want to pick specific stocks they'll have to go rather they have to go through an institution um uh, there there is there is an uh, indian regulator which is called sebi uh, which is the equivalent of the sec in the u.s except uh, i think the sec is uh, you know has evolved over a very long time and is uh, it has far more uh, a far bigger budget for one and, and also uh, it's much more active and has much more powers in terms of surveillance and you know putting people to jail when they do the wrong things and so on. SEBI doesn't have the same kind of powers and yet has not exercised the level of surveillance that the SEC has. But uh, in the last maybe two decades, they have tightened rules considerably to point, to a point where a lot of extreme leverage uh, and fraud has been identified even much earlier. And therefore, Indian markets don't provide the same crazy levels of le- leverage uh, that happens abroad. So, for instance, you had the situation with Robinhood uh, uh, recently. I think not allowing trades in AMC and uh, GameStop right. because of a component of leverage that happens. What happens is the the brokers themselves have to put their own capital to finance the you know option margin trades before, uh, for at least one day or two days, and they are running short of capital themselves. Uh, You don't have a similar problem here. What happens is the settlement system, uh, I mean, you'll you'll have to, uh, this kind of risk does not sit on the broker's end at all. The system won't allow you to take this level of exposure even before. So people, uh, you know, you wouldn't have that same kind of a, uh, a problem where, um, uh, you know, a broker suddenly tells you that you can't trade this stock because they can't; they don't have the capital to bear the margins for two days. Um, uh, in another uh, context, for instance, in GameStop, there was hundred and forty percent, hundred and sixty percent shots in the system. In India, although you can borrow stocks, relatively new mechanism for India, but you can, but you can't do that at all because the number of uh, the way the system works is you can't have more than 10% of the free float of a company in uh, uh, in a borrow and short kind of a mode. So uh, because of that, you don't have the, you know, you don't have these, uh, uh, you do have short squeezes because that, that's for different reasons, but you don't have the same kind of, you know, it's complicated. I, I thinking of myself thinking if you have 160% short, then you have 160% people thinking they're long this stock. So how does that even work? So, you know, yeah. <laughs> that part, uh, that part isn't there, but the, the regulator themselves has, you know, kind of evolved over, it, over the years to kind of identify and break down these things in, in a much better way.
0: Yeah. I guess the answer is rehypothecation, which is clearly a dangerous thing in the system. Um, Deepak, we've got hundreds uh, of people listening to this conversation right now. I see a lot of hands going up. Uh, it would be great to open the floor up to some questions. What do you say?
1: Awesome. Yes, of course. Of course.
0: Great. So if you've got questions uh, for Deepak, please raise your hand. We'll get to you. We'll bring you up on stage. Uh, and we'll let you ask that question of Deepak. Um, looks like we've already got some folks who are up here. I know Twitter's uh being a little laggy as it sometimes is on Twitter Spaces, but it looks like we've got our first uh, person uh, up to ask a question. The fact finder, uh, your question, please for Deepak.
2: Yeah, hi, thanks a lot, Deepak. Uh, this question is about a slightly longer term view on India. Uh, what is your sense about uh, you know the last two years uh, where the organized sector has lost significant amount of jobs and uh, in there is a theory, I think, uh, that was put, uh, put up recently by one of the Prime Minister's Economic Advisory Council members who left now, a guy called R- uh, Ratan Roy, who spoke about how India potentially could get stuck in the middle income cycle.
1: Okay, I haven't read the paper. I remember there was a note about it, but um, uh, yeah, we have. I think uh, to a large extent, uh, covid has affected india a lot more than it has uh, uh, you know in other countries because india did not have uh, the, at least the government did not have the finances to be able to provide uh, uh, incomes uh, for people that during this time but at the same time that has also resulted in us having a much lower inflationary impact in terms of both wages and food and other stuff that uh, uh that has kind of kept our inflation under control so uh, the jobs piece now i think today there was a release of how uh, how much the labor po- uh, uh, workforce participation has been uh it's ma- it's marginally increased over the previous uh, uh, uh over the previous quarter and uh, over the previous year as well but i think Most of this data itself is uh, relatively uh, new. So I think while we may have a lower number of, uh, I mean, we we haven't lost so many jobs as I think uh, not gained as much as we should have. Most of India is anyway entrepreneurial. So for, to a very large extent. So for instance, every single person that is employed by uh, that, that is a swiggy or a zomato rider that would be uh, you know one of the restaurant delivery kind of services here they would not qualify as employed but they would be you know self-employed consultants so i think uh, uh, if you viewed things as if how much of india would you know have been become more entrepreneurial i think our uh, the numbers might look Very different plus of course you've got 50% that's anyway employed in agriculture so uh, you know coming out of that I think will take a few years and as I said this will largely be because you have a large population it's only the top 10% I think worldwide the rich have gotten richer the poor have gotten poorer and it's I think it's even more significant in India the government has made more money in income taxes uh, because only the top 10% of India Pay any income taxes at all. Uh, they have made more, I think, forty percent increase in the last two years in total un- amount of income taxes collected. So uh, no, um, that that can, that inequality continues to be there, and it takes time to trickle down.
0: Great answer and great question. Thank you, FactFinder, for asking that question. Uh, we're going to probably move people back down uh, into the audience as soon as they get a chance to ask their questions so we can get new people uh, up to ask. By the way, it's about 11 o'clock in India now, isn't it, uh, Deepak? Yep.
1: We're but it's, it's, I'm good with it. I'm, I'm a late speaker.
0: So. <laughs> well, that's good. One of the interesting things about Indian time zones, as you said, it's uh, it's across one time zone across the entire country, but also it's at a half hour difference uh, from uh, time zones here in the United States. So about uh, 11.04 p.m. in India right now. Looks like we've got our next question uh, from N-Dollar. Uh, N-Dollar, go ahead and unmute and ask your question, please. Yes, is mm-hmm. that is that your bank? Hi, I think we're having some technical problems with N dollar. Go ahead, Shashank, please, with your question for Deepak. Great.
1: Uh, Deepak, so uh, this is a question that references uh, one of the great conversations Raul had with Balaji, and one of the things that those two were discussing was how maybe at some point in time in 2030, uh, a majority of Internet's uh, English-speaking population will be Indian, And that kind of fascinated me because uh, the trends that I'm seeing with venture capital uh, investment in India is that a lot of venture capital is going towards uh, uh, startups that are building, not just for the Indian economy, but for the world. And just wanted to see what your perspective on that is. If you see uh, Indian entrepreneurs actually building uh, you know, uh, b- building new products that that are for the world economy and how you see that uh, developing in the coming
0: decade. Boy, what a great question. And by the way, uh, for, for folks who are wondering about what Shashank is talking about, uh, this is a conversation with Balaji Srinivasan uh, and our own Rao Pal, co-founder of Real Vision, our current CEO, a great like two and a half hour conversation talking about technology, talking about the rise uh, of Web3 talking about the potential rise of the network state. Really fascinating stuff uh, available now on RealVision. If you'd like to go and sign up for it, uh, it's actually available for free for all RealVision crypto users. So, available for free right now on RealVision. Come out to the site, realvision.com, uh, and take a look because it's really one of the most intriguing conversations that you are likely to hear anytime soon. uh Deepak, sorry for the uh, conversation there, but I just wanted to give a little bit of context to Shawshank's uh, comments. Please go ahead with your answer.
1: Thanks. I actually, I didn't know about this. I should go back and listen to that podcast. I, um, uh, you know, no, much about. I think what...
0: it's fantastic, and I, I actually did two conversations earlier with Biology. He's one of the truly uh, original thinkers, I think, in our space, and uh, his conversation with Rao is just an, an incredible peer-to-peer conversation.
1: Yeah, I deeply respect Balaji and I think uh, his views are well taken. I'm, I'm, I'm on this side here. So, you know, um, in a way, he's preaching to the choir. But, you know, I I like to say this in, in earlier times, uh, India used to be more of a body shop kind of things of stuff that you didn't want to get done or people didn't want to do in other countries. We'd have the labor to do it. And uh, that came from, in many ways, in in the real uh, physical world, it was in textiles, perhaps, and a few other areas. In uh, the digital world, it was also... uh, Uh, in maintenance in you know, a lot of COBOL-based systems that you couldn't find COBOL programmers in the West because they had had upgraded their skills. And uh, so we had a large uh, force here. But now things have started to change where you've got a large uh, programmer base, even in Web3 in crypto, but also in, um, you know, the regular technologies that are being built. We've seen, in fact, the Indian... um, uh, uh, Offices of companies like Ola uh, contribute substantially to uh, worldwide projects like React and so on. And uh, there's a lot of frameworks that have been developed, both open source and otherwise, by uh, developers and entire teams in India. There's a company called Zoho, which has, um, you know, from CRM to a bunch of SaaS-based technology offerings that's privately held, actually, and uh, it's based in India. You have a lot of companies that uh, might actually be, you know, uh, uh, serving the world market. So they may be headquartered in the U.S. but have a substantial amount of their workforce in India, uh, because a, I mean, for multiple reasons, whether it is that the teams um, you could you could find it easier to hire people with the specific talents required in India, and also that. Uh, um, perhaps the founders themselves started off thinking of this model in India and then realized that it's better to set up a headquarter in the US uh, from a business perspective. So these things are happening, I think going along quite well. I I believe this is part of the future. But another part of the future is people developing for the Indian market itself, which is a fairly large uh, uh, market by itself and largely starved of goods and, and services, to be honest.
0: Really interesting. Uh, by the way, I should say, while we're talking about this, these conversations that we're having, this conversation we're having on Twitter, please, if you're enjoying this conversation, smash the follow button. And if you're interested in more content, especially if you're interested in more free content, if you're just getting to know Real Vision for the first time now, head over to YouTube. We've got two channels there where we're producing an incredible amount of free content on the YouTube platform. This is the Real Vision channel and also the Real Vision crypto channel. If you like what you're seeing there, go ahead and smash the subscribe button so you can get alerts for all the content that we're providing and we're pumping out content on a daily basis. We do a Real Vision Daily Briefing Market Wrap Show every day at 4 p.m. Uh, and increasingly ramping up our daily crypto coverage, which I know many people on Twitter spaces are very passionate about. That said, let's move on uh, to our next question. Uh, Kumar, if you can hear me, please go ahead with your question. Yeah, Adipa. good
2: evening, hosts, co listeners, speakers, everybody. Deepak, I like you. Uh,
0: Welcome,
2: Deepak. You have been tracing the Indian markets from a very long time, and you know with Europe and America entering into recession, where do you find? How do you visualize the Indian IT exports and services to Europe and America, and what effect will it have on the trade deficit in India, more particularly? Uh, where do you find in next 6 months or 12 months the US dollar to be? Thank you.
1: uh, So here's my um, quick view on this. Uh, If you look back at 2008 and 2009 when there was a fairly deep recession in the US, I don't I looked at uh, you know revenue numbers and growth of the Indian IT services giants. And uh, it turns out that they were affected, but not quite as much. In fact, they rebounded quite fast. One of the uh, uh, problems at that time was, of course, costs were increasing in the U.S. There was, uh, But they were abundant. Uh, India didn't slow down at all. In fact, at that time, I think our growth rates were still 75 8% real growth uh India slowed very little in 2008 and then you know quite of rebounded fairly fast so I think from an IT services angle they will be uh, they will continue to be interest unless there's an extremely deep recession a uh, depression if you may in uh, the West uh, I believe that these companies uh, they have, their uh, ability to... Uh, con- I mean, some of these are long-standing things, like right? you know, if they're doing infrastructure maintenance and so on. Uh, it's not that you can fire all these people just like that because then who's going to maintain the infrastructure? It's difficult to f- have enough to find people as it is. And even now, in relative terms, having uh, these companies do certain parts of your work is, is substantially cheaper than hiring locally at the time. So... Uh, it might just be that the impact may not be as uh, depressing or bad for an Indian IT services firm as it may be for a relatively um, um, a loss-making, say, a startup uh, in the space, even in India, because you know capital may be more difficult to find in a recession. So I think uh, uh, a the impact will be relatively lower. Uh, they have other levers they can switch part of their. Uh, uh, part of what they do to serve domestic industry as well and to serve other countries which are maybe on the developing part of the ecosystem. I think the... uh, So if you look at the rupee, it's largely uh, against the dollar. It has largely uh, depreciated about 3.5% a year on average. And the inflation difference between India and the US has also been of the order of 3.5-4% to a year if you look at the 20-year kind of time frame. Right now, it appears that India's inflation is actually lower than uh, the inflation you've seen in both Europe and in America. So, the inflation differential compressing might actually augur well for uh, the Indian uh, dollar uh, rupee equation as well, plus India is opening up its bond markets, which are currently very closed to uh, foreign participation, and hopefully that happens. Uh, even rupee bonds getting uh, listed internationally and so on, that might actually control how much the rupee depreciates. So while I think the uh, trade deficit uh, may continue to be as is, some of these other elements, including investing investments, uh, remittances, and some parts of the services area might not make it quite, uh, quite as bad for our trade uh, as we might
0: imagine right now. Thank you, you, Deepak. Thank you very much. Thanks for your question, Kumar. Um, We've got some new folks that are coming up. I know Twitter looks like it's a little bit lagged today. Uh, Looks like we've got uh, Raul Jagatiani. Raul, I I should have known that you would have found us if we were doing a conversation about India. I think Raul... Yeah,
2: hi. Hi, Ash. (laughs) Good to see you here. And uh, I was just listening to you and Raul uh, (laughs) this evening in the gym, actually. So uh, kudos to Real Vision. (laughs) And, um, yeah, uh, my question for Deepak is that a number of big tech firms have Indian origin CEOs, notably Google has Sundar Pichai. Microsoft has Satya Nadella. We also have Parag Agar- Agarwal from Twitter. Uh, in your opinion, how can the Indian government or the entrepreneurial ecosystem prevent this sort of brain drain so India can retain its best talent?
0: Such an interesting question, Rahul.
1: Thanks. Hey, well, you know, honestly, I'd love to answer that, Raul, because but I don't know whether the answer is that the brain drain is good or the brain drain is bad. One in six people in the world is an Indian, so you're going to find a lot of Indians own have high-ranking posts uh, uh, in 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 companies uh, worldwide overall. Uh, you know, there was a time at which. Uh, Indians couldn't go abroad to work it was it was complicated it was expensive it was there were there were restrictions even today india uh, indians are one of the few people who need visas for almost every country americans can go to many places with just their passport so uh, you know moving people even for travel even for uh, vacations is is incredibly more it's much more difficult in, in india even today compared to what it would be To live abroad, so until these things get sorted out, I think you know, living abroad will still carry some kind of uh, living uh, in—not in India, uh, uh, living in the U.S. or living in Germany or Mm -hmm. living in uh, in Europe will always carry a little bit of a uh, attraction from, you know, just. uh quality of living perspective uh, slowly things are changing it will um uh, I, I mean right now for instance uh, i am in bangalore and the infrastructure is uh, crumbling right now in in re- relatively higher rains than earlier and we've had uh, you know uh, uh, traffic backed up for hours and so on so the infrastructure is creaking so to that extent until we fix that i don't think the brain drain will primarily go only for earning more money but it may also be for the quality of life um i don't necessarily see this as a bad thing because eventually a lot of that uh, the learnings that people have when they work in enterprises that are global uh, that comes back the ceo of uh, i think it was pepsi or it was, uh, it was i think png uh uh he came back to india he Worked with organizations. He consulted, helped a number of companies come up. After he retired from PNG, he was head of PNG Worldwide. So, uh, uh, like this, there are lots of examples of people who come back, and maybe they just want to give back, or maybe they just want to. Uh, they see the opportunity in building more global enterprises in India. But this brain drain, what sounds like a bad thing today, will actually be a good thing uh, hmm. another day. At some Thanks. point, but- they told us we have too many people, so.
2: Yeah, thanks, Deepak. And on a lighter note, uh, since you're in Bangalore, perhaps if they push the Bangalore airport a bit further away, away from the city, that may prevent a bunch of people from Bangalore from uh, leaving Bangalore in the first place.
1: <laughs> oh, they've tried. They've tried. It's nearly in another state right now.
0: <laughs> thanks, guys. Thank you. It's a great question, Rolf. Um, you know, Deepak, we talked about this. You talk about some of the challenges for infrastructure uh, in, in Bangalore, physical infrastructure in Bangalore. And, of course, we have our challenges with physical infrastructure here in New York as well. Uh, but you contrasted against the extraordinary bandwidth uh, that you guys have uh, in Bangalore for Internet capacity. It really is an interesting sort of paradox.
1: Oh, yeah. It's almost like we don't want to build stuff with our hands, but in our heads, it's all great, you know, so... it's <laughs> It's so weird. It's just like we can we can we we'll suffer through roads, and I have actually taken conference calls on Zoom uh, while being on the road, stuck in a traffic jam. So it's like you know, <laughs> the best and the worst of both worlds. I don't know what it is because my my Zoom call was seamless. It's just that I couldn't get even hundred meters beyond where I was.
0: Uh,
1: so. I don't know how to explain that. It's probably, it's just bad governance. It's bad of me because I'm sitting there in the Zoom call rather than standing with a placard in front of uh, some politician's office saying fix, fix the roads. But unless people like me go out there and stand with placards, nobody's going to do it. And perhaps that's the bane of we're just out there trying to make more money. That's all it is. (laughs)
0: <laughs> this really is one of the paradoxes of postmodernism. I think you could probably say the same thing about San Francisco in terms of uh, sitting in traffic with high-speed wireless broadband connection. Um, let's go to our next question. Uh, let's go to Robert Charles. Hi, good evening, everyone. Good evening. Uh, Welcome. Thank you so much. Well, uh, I just
2: saw this uh, topic over here which says... Uh, land of opportunity yes india has a land of opportunity but however right there are really certain things right which is uh, lacking due to which uh, right we have a lot of aspirants in india because normally right when i studied from india because i completed my b-tech from india and then thereafter right i completed my m-tech from capital university but uh the problem is there right there the political vision is totally different in terms of the work culture because if, in case if the person want to work over there, right, their wages are not up to the mark, right, that's what exactly we get it in USA or abroad. So India has land of opportunity, but however, right, there are certain things, right, which need to be
0: followed and that need to be raised.
2: So that's what I
0: would like to say over here. <clears throat> Thanks, Robert. Deepak, any comment uh, on Deepak's point?
1: It's interesting because, um, you know, I, I say this, you know, if you um, you might think of it in direct conversion that a person in India gets a lot lesser than a person in the US, but the amount that of uh, whatever goods and services that the money can buy here tends to make a person who might be earning an ordinary income in the US in comparison will be in a super rich category in terms of lifestyle in india in just just the way it is but uh, a lot of things here are relatively uh, you know substantially cheaper so for instance you could you could get a great uh, meal for as little as 2 dollars uh, uh, and and you know it's not it, it's something that you would struggle to find uh, in most cities in uh, in the us um, so I think the cost of living based comparisons wise people um, uh, more people are getting higher wages now. and I must thank the the venture capitalists of, of, of the world they've actually made it possible for uh, uh, Indian uh, uh, employees to earn a substantially higher amount of money than they earlier used to both foreign investment from the venture capital, part of the ecosystem and from large companies that have brought, a better wage and better employee culture to uh, India. It's early days, but I think, um, you know, I don't know if you would uh, easily be able to have a direct comparison saying $1 is 80 rupees. So if you're getting $100,000 in the US, you should get, you know, 88 million rupees uh, uh, in India. I, I don't know if you could easily directly make that comparison, but a person that's making that much in India, would probably be living an equ- the equivalent of a person earning, uh, say, $500,000 a year in uh, uh, in New York. So that's, that's how much the difference is. So sometimes, uh, uh, you know, and of course, you'd, you'd, it would be a land of opportunity also if it wasn't so complicated for people who are not Indian by descent to actually work here because mm. it's very complicated. We make life a lot complicated for people who, from out, who come from outside who want to work here. And perhaps right. that's also something that has to change.
0: Uh, Deepak, I was just going to ask you that very question. Is that something that you see changing? I mean, one of the sort of interesting effects that we've seen here in the United States post pandemic uh, is that lots of folks, uh, myself included, can work from anywhere in the world. Uh, and they are increasingly looking abroad. I have friends who are looking at, for example, moving to Thailand uh, or to to Mexico to try and find a cheaper cost of living with inflation rising very dramatically. Is it something that you see India potentially participating in in the future to attempt to maybe tame that jungle of paperwork and have uh, it be more easily sort of, you know, transition for folks who are working abroad who want to potentially move to India because of high-speed internet, because of Relatively low cost uh, of living. You said an amazing meal for $2. That sounds really, uh, really enviable to me. We pay 16 bucks for a turkey sandwich, I think, in New York City now on the Upper East Side. So obviously a lot of opportunity there. Is that something that you see India potentially transitioning toward in the future?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's all uh, beginning to happen. Uh, we're seeing a lot of people who are like, for instance, people who uh, worked in companies in San Francisco. I know many of them have moved. Uh, some yeah. of them have moved to India and they've set up base here and they work remotely even now. Uh, it's been two years or so. Uh, perhaps I haven't seen. So it's, uh, uh, you know, there were also lots of restrictions during the COVID times. You couldn't come to India. You couldn't, you know. Uh, The vaccines weren't easily available. So I think some part of that is already uh, starting to happen. But I think more of this happens in different ways. Medical facilities, for instance, in India have improved quite substantially. So there's a lot of medical tourism, uh, a procedure if you're not insured in the US or if you for some reason in a country where certain procedures are not available to you for for your insurance. It can be cheaper to come to India and get this, to, to get this done here in a very high-class hos- hospital uh, than to uh, get the same operation done in the U.S. So there's a lot of medical tourism as well. So like this, I think uh, the tech, technology-based remote work kind of tourism is happening. But I'll put a caveat on that. I don't think this is going to last very long. Every business has started to realize that it needs the camaraderie of people working in the same place, if not all the time than at least a few days a week or at least some kind of physical meeting. And so I think the number of uh, companies that will have a pure on online facility, you know, work culture, they will be a smaller and smaller percentage than compared to what we are seeing right now. So if there are about 50% of companies that are allowing this today, I think only 10% will eventually. So uh, while we, it's a romantic thing to think we could work from anywhere, I would just say, uh, it's probably a pipe dream at some point because people are going to go back, uh, and when things start to go back, everybody will, or most people will. So, um, whatever happens, it may be just the next one or two years.
0: Well, that's really interesting, and it's a, that would be a fun topic to debate. It's it's interesting because at Real Vision, we've you know completely committed to being totally virtualized, and what's what's what, what winds up happening is during the pandemic, you know, you would you would have someone who would say. You know listen i i know you guys are looking for a video editor real vision but you know my cousin she's an amazing video editor but you know unfortunately she's based in california you go, oh well that's not a problem and pretty soon you've got this critical mass of people working remotely and it almost feels like uh the genie doesn't ever go back into the bottle or the toothpaste doesn't ever go back into the tube because once you become a virtualized company you know you can you kind of have to stay that way because you have great people working all over the country indeed all over the world. Uh, but it is an interesting one, and we do talk about exactly that point, Deepak, about how you're going to, how do you build a culture? How do you strengthen the relationships? How do you create the feeling of, as you say, camaraderie? It's a it's a really fascinating question. Listen, Deepak, I know we've been going here for a while. Incredible conversation as we come to a conclusion here. Uh, final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our listeners with.
1: Yeah, thanks. Ash. I was a fascinating conversation. Um, you know, I think... Uh, uh, to a certain extent, you know, I, I live here, so I'm very biased and therefore very bullish about India as well. But I think there's a lot more that will happen, and we're building uh, stuff that that is quite incredible. The U P UPI, which is the uh, payments framework that I talk about, um, it does a million transactions uh, a month now, or a million. Uh, so. Uh, uh, a billion Oh, well i know i sorry 10 trillion So 10 trillion rupees changes hands every month versus wow. 1 trillion rupees that that is transacted on credit cards every month it's 10 times the number wow. of amount of money that's going through this upi system and I, it was an
0: extraordinary example of the leapfrogging that we were just talking about the idea that it succeeded credit card payments by a factor of 10x
1: and it was one-fifth the amount of, of, of... That means it was it was only 20% of the credit card volumes in 2016. So, it's gone up like that in six years. Um, uh, so, okay. it, it's it's interesting because I think, you know, this opens the door to a lot more, uh, uh, you know, a lot more both financial and real-world innovation. I, I can go uh, pick up something for five rupees and pay it, pay the person... Uh, who has this little uh, QR code. I don't even have to figure out how. I just have to scan the QR code and pay this person. Uh, Many of them have merchants, small real merchants, small shops, and so on. They have a little sound box that says, well, I've received five rupees. This uh, even saves them the trouble of actually opening their phone and reading through an SMS that says they've got the money. It actually speaks it out. On a speakerphone so this kind of innovation that's been that's happening here i think um it may be incremental and small innovation but it, change, it changes the lives of a lot of people who may not be able to speak the same language have the same lit, lit uh, you know uh, uh literary facilities so for instance they may not be able to read uh and and uh, and so on uh and you you build this innovation for india Some of it will carry on and uh, be available for the rest of the world as well. So some part of the opportunities will emerge from here. But I think a lot of the stuff that's uh, perhaps not as viable In the West, uh, for example, handheld ultrasound scanners, Uh, you might consider, say, in the U.S., it makes makes very little sense to carry something that's handheld and works off of an iPhone. In India, it's a huge, huge thing because ultrasound machines are are relatively expensive and it's more difficult to have them installed in remote villages. So if a person can carry them handheld, uh, it would be phenomenal. Somebody actually did invent this in the U.S., and they said this U.S. Is, does not think this is a great market. And I'm looking at this and saying this is huge for India. So some of the stuff that's abroad, um, that's that's probably in, invented abroad, might have much much larger users in in a place like India, uh, quite as well. So I think you know, much as I say this, I think the future is bright. It's future is bright for all of us. We may mm-hmm. go through some you know problems in the next six or eight months while well, everybody gets antsy about fuel prices, about recession, about interest rates. But in general, uh, you know, I think we have to be, if we're, if, uh, you know, human race survived a COVID kind of pandemic, it will survive anything else that, yeah, you know, you can throw at it. So uh, if you come out positive, I think both India and the world will come out, uh, you know, uh, uh, much more positive in the in the, in the future.
0: Well, that's a great note of optimism to close on. I've really enjoyed this conversation, Deepak. I hope we can do more of these. Uh, And by the way, I should say, if you are enjoying this conversation, please hit the follow button, follow Real Vision, follow me at Ash Bennington. We're going to be hosting many more of these conversations uh, in the weeks and months to come. Uh, This is a topic that I find absolutely fascinating. I'm absolutely um, fascinated by everything that's happening in India uh, right now, particularly from an economic uh, and business perspective. So lots of great conversations to have. And by the way, if you'd like more of these conversations in a video format, please head over to YouTube, Real Vision's YouTube channel and Real Vision Crypto if you're interested in crypto. Go ahead and subscribe to those. You'll get notifications of all the content that we're pushing out on a regular basis on youtube and thank you again deepak for joining us
1: thanks so much ash and thanks to everyone who was listening and who, who came up as speakers as well it's been it's a late evening on uh, uh ganesh chuturthi so i value the fact that you've taken the time out here so happy ganesha to everyone uh and uh a uh, good evening uh, uh uh you know to to everyone here and thanks so much ash for the opportunity.
0: That really is the perfect way to close it, Deepak. Thank you again, everyone, to listen for listening. I think we had about 500 people here at peak, and especially everyone who came us came up and joined us and asked questions. We really appreciate you listening, and we definitely appreciate the questions and the interactions. Thank you again. We'll be joining you again soon.
1: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads.